Chapter Eight of the Invasion by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eight, Defense at Last. Late on Wednesday night came tardy news of the measures we were taking to mobilize. The Aldershot Army Corps, so complete in the army list, consisted, as all the world knew, of three divisions, but of these only two existed the other being found to be on paper. The division in question, located at Bordon, was to be formed on mobilization, and this measure was now being proceeded with. The train service was practically suspended, owing to the damage done to the various lines south of London by the enemy's emissaries. Several of these men had been detected, and, being in plain clothes, were promptly shot out of hand. However, their work had, unfortunately for us, been accomplished, and trains could only run as far as the destroyed bridges, so men on their way to join their respective corps were greatly delayed in consequence. All was confusion at Bordon, where men were arriving in hundreds on foot and by the service of motor omnibuses, which the war office had on the day before, established between Charing Cross and Aldershot. Perspiring staff officers strove diligently, without much avail, to sort out into their respective units this ever-increasing mass of reservists. There was perfect chaos. Before the chief constituent parts of the division, that is to say, regiments who were stationed elsewhere, had arrived, little could be done with the reservists. The regiments in question were in many cases stationed at considerable distance, and although they had received orders to start, were prevented from arriving owing to the universal interruptions of the railway traffic south. By this whole valuable days were lost, days when at any hour the invaders might make a sudden swoop on London. Reports were alarming and conflicting. Some said that the enemy meant to strike a blow upon the capital just as suddenly as they had landed, while others reassured the alarmists that the German plans were not yet complete and that they had not sufficient stores to pursue the campaign. Reservists, with starvation staring them in the face, went eagerly south to join their regiments, knowing that at least they would be fed with regularity, while in addition the true patriotic spirit of the Englishman had been roused against the aggressive Teuton, and every one, officer and man, was eager to bear his part in driving the invader into the sea. The public were held breathless. What would happen? Arrivals at Aldershot, however, found the whole arrangements in such complete muddle that Army Service Corps men who ought to have been at Woolwich were presenting themselves for enrollment at Borden, and infantry of the line were conducted into the camp of the Dragoons. The Motor Volunteer Corps were at this moment of very great use. The cars were filled with staff officers and other exalted officials who were setting themselves in various offices and passing out again to make necessary arrangements for dealing with such a large influx of men. There were activity and excitement everywhere. Men were rapidly drawing their clothing, or as much of it as they could get, and civilians were quickly becoming soldiers on every hand. Officers of the reserve were driving up in motor-cars and cabs, many of them with their old battered uniform cases that had seen service in the field in distant parts of the globe. Men from the junior and the senior wrung each other's hands on returning to active duty with their old regiments, and at once settled down into the routine work they knew so well. 
The rumor, however, had now got about that a position in the neighborhood of Cambridge had been selected by the general staff as being the most suitable theater of action where an effective stand could, with any hope of success, be made. It was evident that the German tactics were to strike a swift and rapid blow at London. Indeed, nothing at present stood in their way except the gallant little garrison at Colchester, who had been so constantly driven back by the enemy's cavalry on attempting to make any reconnaissance, and who might be swept out of existence at any hour. During Tuesday and Wednesday large groups of workmen had been busy repairing the damaged lines. The first regiment complete for the field was the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Fusiliers, who carried upon their colors the names of a score of battles, ranging from Coronia and Badajoz, all through the peninsula, Afghanistan and Egypt, down to the Mater River. This regiment left my train for London on Tuesday evening, and was that same night followed by the 2nd Battalion King's Liverpool Regiment and the 1st King's Shropshire Light Infantry, while the Manchester Regiment got away soon after midnight. These formed the 2nd Infantry Brigade of the 1st Division, and were commanded by Brigadier General Sir John Money. They were several hours getting up to London, whence from Clapham Junction their trains circled London on to the great eastern system to Braintree where the Horn Hotel was made the headquarters. By other trains in the small hours of the morning, the last of the Guards Brigade, under Colonel, temporary Brigadier General, Lord Wansford departed, and duly arrived at Saffron Walden to join their comrades on the line of defense. The divisional troops were also on the move early on Wednesday. Six batteries of artillery and the field company of Royal Engineers left by road. There was a balloon section accompanying this, and searchlights, wireless instruments, and cables for field telegraphy were carried in the wagons. The second division, under Lieutenant General Morgan, C.B., was also active. The third infantry brigade, commanded by Major General Fortescue, composed of 2nd Battalion Northamptonshire Regiment, the 2nd Bedfordshire, the 1st Princess of Wales' own, and the 1st Royal Welsh Fusiliers were preparing, but had not yet moved. The 4th Infantry Brigade of the same division, consisting of the 3rd and 4th Battalions King's Royal Rifle Corps, the 2nd Sherwood Foresters, and the 2nd South Lancashire, with the usual smartness of those distinguished regiments, were quick and ready, now as ever, to go to the front. They were entrained to Baldock, slightly east of Hitchin, where they marched out on the Ickneal Way. These were followed by Fortescue's brigade, who were also bound for Baldock and the neighborhood. The bulk of the cavalry and field artillery of both divisions, together with the divisional troops, were compelled to set out by march route from Aldershot for the line of defenses. The single and all-sufficient reason of this delay in sending out the cavalry and artillery was owing to the totally inadequate accommodation on the railways for the transport of so many horses and guns. The troop trains, which were of course necessary to transport the infantry, were not forthcoming in sufficient numbers, this owing to the fact that at several points the lines to London were still interrupted. The orders to the cavalry, who went by march route, were to get up to the line proposed to be taken up by the infantry as quickly as possible, and to operate in front of it to the east and northeast in screening and reconnoitering duties. The temporary deficiency of cavalry, who ought of course to have been the first to arrive at the scene, 
was made good as far as possible by the general employment of hordes of motorcyclists who scoured the country in large armed groups in order to ascertain, if possible, the dispositions of the enemy. This they did, and very soon after their arrival reported the result of their investigations to the general officers commanding the first and second divisions. Meanwhile, both cavalry and artillery in great bodies and strings of motor omnibuses filled with troops were upon the white dusty roads passing through Staines to Hounslow and Brentford, thence to London, St. Albans, in route to their respective divisions. Roughly the distance was over fifty miles. Therefore those marching were compelled to halt the night on the way, while those in the motor omnibuses got through to their destination. The sight of British troops hurrying to the front swelled the hearts of the villagers and townsfolk with renewed patriotism, and everywhere, through the blazing dusty day, the men were offered refreshment by even the poorest and humblest cottagers. In Bagshot, in Staines, and in Hounslow, the people went frantic with excitement as squadron after squadron rapidly passed along with its guns, wagons, and ambulances rumbling noisily over the stones in the rear. Following these came pontoon troops with their long gray wagons and mysterious-looking bridging apparatus, telegraph troops, balloon sections, supply columns, field bakery and field hospitals, the last named packed in wagons marked with the well-known Red Cross of the Geneva Convention. No sooner was Aldershot denuded of its army corps, however, than battalions began to arrive from Portsmouth on their way north, while troops from the great camp on Salisbury Plain were rapidly being pushed to the front, which, roughly speaking, extended through Hitchin, Royston, to Saffron Walden, across the Baintree, and also the high ground commanding the valley of the Cone to Colchester. The line chosen by the general staff was the natural chain of hills which presented the first obstacle to the enemy advancing on London from the wide plain stretching eastward beyond Cambridge to the sea. If this could be held strongly, as was intended, by practically the whole of the British forces located in the south of England, including the yeomanry, militia, and volunteers, who were now all massing in every direction, then the deadly peril threatening England might be averted. But could it be held? This was the appalling question on everyone's tongue all over the country, for it now became generally known that upon this line of defence four complete and perfectly equipped German army corps were ready to advance at any moment, in addition to the right flank being exposed to the attack of the Twelfth Saxon Corps entrenched on the Essex coast. It was estimated that no fewer than two hundred thousand Germans were already upon English soil. The outlook grew blacker every hour. London was in a state of absolute stagnation and chaos. In the city business was now at an entire standstill. The credit system had received a fatal blow, and nobody wanted to buy securities. Had people kept level heads in the crisis there would have been a moratorium, but, as it was, a panic had been created that nothing could allay. Even councils were now unsaleable. Some of the smaller banks were known to have failed, and traders and manufacturers all over the country had been ruined on account of credit, the foundation of all trade having been swept away. Only persons of the highest financial standing could have dealt with the banks, even if they had remained open. The opinion held in banking circles was that if the invasion should unfortunately prove disastrous to England, 
and Germany demand a huge indemnity, there was still hope, however small. The experience of the Franco-German War had proved that, though in such circumstances the bank, for a considerable period, might not be able to resume cash payments, yet with sound finance, there was no reason that the currency should greatly depreciate. During the period of suspension of cash payments by the Bank of France, the premium on gold never went above 1.5 per cent, and during most of the period was five, four, or even less per mill. Therefore, what the French by sound banking had been able to do, there was no reason why English bankers could not also do. We, Wilhelm, give notice to the inhabitants of those provinces occupied by the German Imperial Army that I make war upon the soldiers and not upon English citizens. Consequently, it is my wish to give the latter and their property entire security, and as long as they do not embark upon hostile enterprise against the German troops, they have a right to my protection. Generals commanding the various corps in the various districts in England are ordered to place before the public the stringent measures which I have ordered to be adopted against towns, villages, and persons who act in contradiction to the usages of war. They are to regulate in the same manner all the operations necessary for the well-being of our troops, to fix the difference between the English and German rate of exchange, and to facilitate in every manner possible the individual transactions between our army and the inhabitants of England. Wilhelm, given at Potsdam, September 4, 1910. At the outbreak of the war of 1870, on August 1, French 3% rents were at 60, 85, and 4.5% at 98. On the memorable day of Sedan, September 2nd, they were at 50.80 and 88.50 respectively, and on January 2nd, 1871, 3% were down to 50, 95. At the commencement of the Commune, on March 18th, they were at 51.50, and seventy-six twenty-five, and on the thirtieth of that month were down to fifty-sixty and seventy-six twenty-five, respectively. With so little money in England as there now was, securities had fallen to the value at which holders would as soon not sell as sell at such a great discount. High rates and the heavy fall in the value of securities had brought business in every quarter all over London to a standstill. Firms all over the country were now hard put to in order to find the necessary money to carry on their various trades. Instantly after the report of the reverse at Sheffield, there was a wild rush to obtain gold, and securities dropped even a few more points. Therefore there was little or nothing for the banks to do, and Lombard Street, Lothbury, and the other banking centers were closed as though it had been Sunday or bank holiday. Despair was, alas, everywhere, and the streets presented strange scenes. Most of the motor omnibuses had been taken off the road and pressed into the service of the military. The walls bore a dozen different broadsides and proclamations which were read by the gaping hungry crowds. The royal standard flying from St. Stephen's Tower, for Parliament had now met, and all members who were not abroad for their summer vacation, had taken their places at the heated debates now hourly in progress. Over Buckingham Palace the royal standard also flew proudly, while upon every public building was displayed a Union Jack or a white ensign, many of which had done duty at the coronation of His Majesty King Edward. 
the Admiralty flew its own flag, and upon the War Office, the India Office, the Foreign Office, and all the dark somber government buildings in Whitehall was bunting displayed. The wild enthusiasm of Sunday and Monday, however, had given place to a dark, hopeless apprehension. The great mobs now thronging all the principal thoroughfares in London were already half-famished. Food was daily rising in price, and the East End was already starving. Bands of lawless men and women from the slums of Whitechapel were parading the West End streets and squares, and were camping out in Hyde Park and St. James's Park. The days were stifling, for it was an unusually hot September following upon a blazing August, and as each breathless evening the sun sank, it shed its blood-red afterglow over the giant metropolis grimly precursory of the ruin so surely imminent. Supplies were still reaching London from the country, but there had been immediate panic in the corn and provision markets, with the result that prices had instantly jumped up beyond the means of the average Londoner. The poorer ones were eagerly collecting the refuse in Covent Garden Market and boiling it down to make soup in lieu of anything else, while wise fathers of families went to the shops themselves and made meagre purchases daily of just sufficient food to keep body and soul together. For the present there was no fear of London being absolutely starved, at least the middle-class and wealthier portion of it. At present it was the poor, the toiling millions now unemployed, who were the first to feel the pinch of hunger and its consequent despair. They filled the main arteries of London, Holborn, Oxford Street, the Strand, Regent Street, Piccadilly, the Haymarket, St. James's Street, Park Lane, Victoria Street, and Knightsbridge overflowing northward into Grosvenor, Berkeley, Portman, and Cavendish Squares, Portland Place, and to the terraces around Regent's Park. The centre of London became congested. Day and night it was the same. There was no sleep. From across the river and from the east end the famished poor came in their bewildering thousands, the majority of them honest workers, indignant that by the foolish policy of the government they now found themselves breadless. Before the Houses of Parliament, before the fine new War Office and the Admiralty, before Downing Street, and before the houses of known members of the government, constant demonstrations were being made, the hungry crowds groaning at the authorities, and singing, God save the King. Though starving and in despair, they were nevertheless loyal, still confident that by the personal effort of His Majesty some amicable arrangement would be arrived at. The French, Entente Cordiale, was remembered, and our sovereign had long ago been declared to be the first diplomat in Europe. Every Londoner believed in him and loved him. Many houses of the wealthy, especially those of foreigners, had their windows broken. In Park Lane, in Piccadilly, and in Grosvenor Square more particularly, the houses seemed to excite the ire of the crowds who, notwithstanding special constables having been sworn in, were now quite beyond the control of the police. The German ambassador had presented his letters of recall on Sunday evening, and together with the whole staff had been accorded a safe conduct to Dover, whence they had left for the continent. The embassy in Carlton House Terrace, and also the consulate general in Finsbury Square had, however, suffered severely at the hands of the angry crowd, notwithstanding that both premises were under police protection. All the German waiters employed at the Cecil, the Savoy, the Carlton, 
the Metropole, the Victoria, the Grand, and the other big London hotels had already fled for their lives out into the country anywhere from the vengeance of the London mob. Hundreds of them were trying to make their way within the German lines in Essex and Suffolk, and it was believed that many had succeeded, those most probably who had previously acted as spies. Others, it was reported, had been set upon by the excited populace, and more than one had lost his life. Pandemonium reigned in London. Every class and every person in every walk of life was affected. German interests were being looked after by the Russian ambassador, and this very fact caused a serious demonstration before Chesham House, the big mansion where lives the representative of the Tsar. Audacious spies had in secret in the night actually posted copies of von Kronhelm's proclamation upon the Griffin at Temple Bar, upon the Marble Arch, and upon the Mansion House. But these had been quickly torn down, and if the hand that had placed them there had been known, it would certainly have meant death to the one who had thus insulted the citizens of London. Yet the truth was, alas, too plain. Spread out across Essex and Suffolk, making leisurely preparations and laughing at our futile defence, lay over one hundred thousand well-equipped, well-fed Germans, ready, when their plans were completed, to advance upon and crush the complex city which is the pride and home of every Englishman, London. On Friday night an official communication from the War Office was issued to the press, showing the exact position of the invaders. It was roughly this. The Ninth German Corps, which had effected a landing at Lowstoff, had, after moving along the most easterly route, including the road through Saxmanham and Ipswich, at length arrived at a position where their infantry outpost had occupied the higher slopes of the rising ground overlooking the River Star near Manningtree, which town as well as Ipswich was held by them. The left flank of this corps rested upon the River Star itself so that it was secure from any turning movement. Its front was opposed to and directly threatened Colchester, while its outpost, to say nothing of its independent cavalry, reached out in a northerly direction towards Stowe Market, where they joined hands with the left flank of the Tenth Corps, those under von Vilberg, who had landed at Yarmouth, whose headquarters were now at Bury St. Edmunds, their outpost being disposed south, overlooking the valley of the upper reaches of the Star. Nor was this all. From Newmarket there came information that the enemy who had landed at Weybourne and Cromer, the Fourth Corps under von Kleppen, were now encamping on the racecourse and being billeted in the town and villages about, including Exning, Ashley, Moulton, and Kentforth. Frulich's cavalry brigade had penetrated south, covering the advance, and had now scoured the country, sweeping away the feudal resistance of the British yeomanry and scattering cavalry squadrons which they found opposed to them, all the time maintaining communication with the Tenth Corps on their left and the flower of the German army, the Guards Corps from King's Lynn on their right. Throughout the advance from Holt, von Dorndorf's motorists had been of the greatest utility. They had taken constantly companies of infantry hither and thither. At any threatened point, so soon as the sound of firing was heard in any cavalry skirmish or little engagement of outpost, the smart motor infantry were on the spot with the promptness of a fire brigade proceeding to a call. For this reason the field artillery, who were largely armed with quick-firing guns, capable of pouring in a hail of shrapnel on any exposed point, 
were enabled to push on much further than would have been otherwise possible. They were always adequately supported by a sufficient escort of these up-to-date troops, who, although infantry, moved with greater rapidity than cavalry itself, and who, moreover, brought with them their maxims which dealt havoc far and near. The magnificent troops of the Duke of Mannheim, in their service uniforms, who had landed at King's Lynn, had come across the wide, level roads, some by way of Downham Market, Littleport, and Ely, and arrived at Cambridge. The second division, under Lieutenant General von Kosten, protecting the exposed flanks, had marched via Wisbeach, March, Chatteris, and St. Ives, while the masses of the cavalry of the guard, including the famous White Crusaders, had been acting independently around the flat fen country, Spalding and Peterborough, and away to quaint old Huntington, striking terror into the inhabitants, and effectively checking any possible offensive movement of the British that might have been directed upon the great German army during its ruthless advance. Beyond this, worse remained. It was known that the Seventh Corps, under von Bistram, had landed at Goul, and that General Graf Hessler had landed at Hull, New Holland, and Grimsby. This revealed what the real strategy of the Generalissimo had been. Their function seemed twofold. First and foremost their presence, as a glance at the map will show, effectually prevented any attack from the British troops gathered from the north and elsewhere, and who were, as shown, concentrated near Sheffield and Birmingham, until these two corps had themselves been attacked and repulsed, which were, alas, utterly unable to accomplish. There were two fine German army corps, complete to the proverbial last button, splendidly equipped, well fed, and led by officers who had had lifelong training and were perfectly well acquainted with every mile of the country they occupied by reason of years of careful study given to maps of England. It was now entirely plain that the function of these two corps was to paralyze our trade in Yorkshire and Lancashire, to commit havoc in the big cities, to terrify the people, and to strike a crushing blow at our industrial centers, leaving the siege of London to the four other corps now so rapidly advancing upon the metropolis. Events, meanwhile, were marching quickly in the north. The town of Sheffield, throughout Tuesday and Wednesday, was the scene of the greatest activity. Day and night the streets were filled with an excited populace, and hour by hour the terror increased. Every train arriving from the north was crowded with volunteers and troops of the line from all stations in the northern command. The 1st Battalion West Riding Regiment had joined the Yorkshire Light Infantry, who were already stationed in Sheffield, as had also the 19th Hussars, and from every regimental district and depot came battalions of militia and volunteers. From Carlisle came the reservists of the Border Regiment, from Richmond those of the Yorkshire Regiment, from Newcastle came what was left of the reservists of the Durham Light Infantry and the Northumberland Fusiliers, from Lancaster the Royal Lancashires, while field artillery came from Seaforth and Preston, and small bodies of reservists of the Liverpool and South Lancashire Regiments came from Warrington. Contingents of the East and North Lancashire Regiments arrived from Preston. The militia, including battalions of the Liverpool Regiment, the South Lancashire Regiment, the Lancashire Fusiliers, and other regiments in the command were hurried to the scene of action outside Sheffield. From every big town in the whole of the north of England and south of Scotland came straggling units of volunteers. The mounted troops were almost entirely yeomanry, 
and included the Duke of Lancaster's own imperial yeomanry, the East Riding of York's, the Lancashire Hussars, Northumberland Yeomanry, Westmoreland and Cumberland Yeomanry, the Queen's own Yorkshire Dragoons, and the York Hussars. These troops, with their ambulances, their baggage, and all their impedimenta, created the utmost confusion at both railway stations. The great concourse of idlers cheered and cheered again, the utmost enthusiasm being displayed when each battalion, forming up, was marched away out of the town to the position chosen for the defence, which now reached from Woodhouse on the south, overlooking and commanding the whole valley of the River Rother, through Catcliffe, Brinsworth, and Tinsley, previously alluded to, skirting Greaseborough to the high ground north of Wentworth, also commanding the River Don, and all approaches to it through Mexborough, and over the various bridges which spanned this stream, a total of about eight miles. The south flank was thrown back another four miles to Norton in an endeavour to prevent the whole position being turned, should the Germans elect to deliver their threatened blow from a more southerly point than was anticipated. The total line, then, to be occupied by the defenders was about twelve miles, and into this front was crowded the heterogeneous mass of troops of all arms. The post of honour was at Catcliffe, the dominating key to the whole position, which was occupied by the sturdy soldiers of the 1st Battalion, West Riding Regiment, and the 2nd Battalion, Yorkshire Light Infantry, while commanding every bridge crossing the rivers which lay between Sheffield and the invaders, were concentrated the guns of the 7th Brigade, Royal Horse Artillery, and of the Field Artillery, the 2nd, the 30th, the 37th, and 38th Brigades, the latter having hurriedly arrived from Bradford. All along the crests of these slopes, which formed the defence of Sheffield, rising steeply from the river at times up to five hundred feet, were assembled the volunteers, all now by daybreak on Thursday morning, busily engaged in throwing up shelter trenches and making hasty earthwork defences for their guns. The superintendence of this force had merged itself into that of the Northern Command, which nominally had its headquarters in York, but which had now been transferred to Sheffield itself for the best of reasons, that it was of no value at York and was badly wanted farther south. General Sir George Woolmer, who so distinguished himself in South Africa, had therefore shifted his headquarters to the town hall in Sheffield, but as soon as he had begun to get the line of defence completed, he with his staff moved on to Hansworth, which was centrally situated. In the command were to be found roughly twenty-three battalions of militia and forty-eight of volunteers. But, owing to the supineness and neglect of the government, the former regiments now found themselves, at the moment when wanted, greatly denuded of officers, and, owing to any lack of encouragement to enlist, largely depleted in men. As regards the volunteers, matters were even worse only about fifteen thousand having responded to the call to arms. And upon these heroic men, utterly insufficient in point of numbers, Sheffield had to rely for its defence. Away to the eastward of Sheffield, exactly where was yet unknown, sixty thousand perfectly equipped and thoroughly trained German horse, foot, and artillery were ready at any moment to advance westward into our manufacturing districts. End of chapter 8. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks.com.